I love Easter. It's a big day. It's a really, really big day for Christians. In 1880, Nietzsche declared philosophically that in our society, Western civilization, God was dead. His compatriots said that by the end of the 20th century, the religious phase of our culture will have ended. And now one decade into the 21st century, there is a church in the former Museum of Religious Thought of the Soviet Union. 50% of all the citizens in the United States believe in God. There is a revival sweeping Latin America. Christianity is not just alive, but thriving in the last atheistic stronghold in the world, and that's the nation of China. And believe it or not, check out the internet, there's a revival for Jesus Christ taking place in the country of Iraq. Nietzsche had his declaration, I have a new one. Nietzsche is dead. God keeps going on living. Recently, a convert to Christianity from an African Islamic nation was asked why. Why did he turn to Christ? And he put it this way. Well, picture yourself traveling down a road in life, and you come to a fork in that road, and you have to make a decision. And down both paths is a man. One of them is dead, and the other is alive. Of which one would you inquire the way? That's the Easter message. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. We don't stand today and talk about Christianity the way sociologists do as one of the four great world religions. We acknowledge that there are great world religions, but religion is a man-made attempt to bridge the gap between the human race and God. Christianity is God's bridge. It's why Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he proved it by laying his life down for us and then taking it back through the power of the resurrection. And that same power is ours. That is the story of the resurrection. I remember um, as a teenager, I was raised in a Christian home. In fact, my father was a preacher. But I remember as a teenager, I had reached that place where the easy faith of a child no longer satisfied. Any of you who have grown up in a religious home probably recognize that phase that I now look back and call spiritual puberty. Just like you grow up and become a man or a woman, the same thing happens spiritually. Your ideas broaden things and concepts that didn't have to play into your simple ideas of faith as a child suddenly loom large. And you look at them and you have to ask yourself, well, where does Jesus fit into those things? Where does my faith fit into those things? And we make it particularly hard as a culture because we encourage faith in mythological creatures like Santa and the Easter Bunny. And then we put those things aside. We put aside childish things and we try to carry Jesus forward. I think, I think we handicap our kids sometimes with that. So as I was a teenager, I had a lot of doubts. And the circles I was raised in were those kind of circles where you didn't admit those kind of things. It was as though to suggest that I had doubts meant that I didn't have faith. How can you have all these questions and still believe in God? Don't the questions themselves mean I don't believe? But I never shared that with anybody. I just kept it to myself. I suspect there were other young people that went through that same thing in our types of Christian circles, but they never got their answers. And it's why, as adults, they slowly drifted away from the faith. I'm so grateful that God held me true during that time. And you know what held me? The empty tomb. 
It was Josh McDowell's books, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, where he portrays the clear evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what held me, kept me moving forward and holding on to Christ. I serve a risen Savior. As a young man, when my mother passed away in my early 20s, kind of a shock to all of us, and we're sitting there devastated. It was the risen Christ that was able to minister to me with his words, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me will never die. It's the risen Christ that spoke those words to me. I've been a pastor for more than three decades. I've ministered at many funerals. I've ministered at funerals of families in this room. And it's the risen Christ that has allowed me to stand up and talk about the hope that is ours and quote the words of the Apostle Paul, we are not like those who have no hope. And that through all of life's circumstances, through all the hardships, the personal betrayals, and the losses, and the difficulties, it's the risen Christ that holds me true and says to me, in this world, you will have hardship, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Yes, this is a big day. It's also a big day because it's the largest attended Sunday in the Christian calendar year. A lot of people show up for church on Easter Sunday. Why do you think that is? I think it's probably because a lot of people think, well, that's the one Sunday out of the year I stand a chance of hearing a positive sermon. Resurrection, that's about good news. Spring, flowers, new life, forgiveness. They all come expecting they're going to hear a real positive, hopeful sermon. Except here. I have something else I want to talk about today. I want you to turn with me to the resurrection account that's in Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? So the very first thing we picture, and we'll continue to read in just a moment, the very first thing we picture are these three women that are working their way towards the tomb. Mark talks about them in chapter 15, just a few verses earlier, verse 40. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and and of Joseph and of Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. So these are the very same women that Mark describes as having watched the events of three days earlier from a distance. It's an important phrase to catch. They saw it from a distance, the trials. They saw the brutal beatings watching and trailing behind, helpless to do anything, but from a distance, capturing the events. They watched him die. They followed from a distance as Joseph of Arimathea and others took the body and very quickly wrapped it in the burial cloth without ointment because time was running out. The Sabbath was about to begin. They quickly buried Jesus. And then they watched as they dropped the two to three ton stone in place in this borrowed tomb. 
Now, because we know there was a stone, we, we know that this was a tomb very common in its day that had been dug out of the side of a cliff, a cliff face. And the stone itself that they would drop over the tomb was also cut out of the cliff face. And it was left nearly loose, except for a very small stone that was left wedging it in place. So all that had to happen once the body was in the tomb, it's interesting they call the tomb that Jesus used a borrowed tomb. That's a once-in-a-lifetime term, I think, don't you? And I'm sure they didn't think of it as borrowed at the time. It was a generous gift to him. And I'm sure they thought they were laying him in there permanently. And what would happen is, as soon as all was set, they would take, and with the chisel, they'd knock away that final small stone, the dofeg. And once it was cleared, that stone would drop down into a groove that it was prepared for, where it was intended to stay forever. The women had seen all of this from a distance. They'd watched death itself from a distance. I, I see us in that. Don't you? I think that is the posture that all of us take in life with regard to death. We like to keep death at a distance. Death is the enemy. We do all that we can to stretch out life as long as we can. We keep ourselves healthy. We exercise and we're careful. We're very careful. We want to keep death as far out there as possible. But every once in a while, we can't avoid it. Death pushes itself on us, the loss of a loved one or a friend. We find ourselves alongside a grave in a memorial service. Death comes near, and we're uncomfortable. We, we don't like death. We like keeping it at a distance. But these women know that the job wasn't done with Jesus, and so it was the first day of the week. They finally gather the things that they need, and they're actually headed to the tomb to finish the job. And as they go, they're, they're realizing that they're going to have a hard time. They, they hadn't really thought about it, but now they're thinking, wait a minute, this, there's a stone in the way. What were we thinking? And the language isn't so much who's going to move the stone, who's as in we need to bring some strong men to move it. It's like who could possibly move this stone? That's more the phrase that they're saying here. Who could possibly move that stone? What were we thinking? Between them and Jesus is this great barrier, and I see us in that as well, pushing our stones between our hope, our goals, our dreams, and us is always that Sisyphus experience, the stone that we're always pushing and never getting clear. I wonder if you could think into your life right now those things that stand in the way of the life you aspire to, and they're just constantly there. And when, when you get down, it's because those things that block your way loom large, and hopeless. For these women, it wasn't just that the stone was there, but at the end of that, and I think we, we can share in this experience as well, even if the stone were to be cleared at the end of all that effort, what's waiting for us? What was waiting for them? Death. Death was on the other side. Dead is still dead. At the end of all of our pushing, all of our striving, all of our attempt to achieve and get around the things that block us from the life that we believe will bring us fulfillment in all of our spirits. We know you can hold it off. You can keep it as a distance for only so long. Eventually, death always wins. 
And this is what these women experienced as they came to the tomb that day. I wonder what they were thinking as they came to the tomb. Mark tells us in the previous chapter they had been with him in Galilee. Galilee was the good times. Mary Magdalene, one of these women, she was delivered from seven demons. Where? In Galilee. Jesus was full of life in Galilee. Perhaps those thoughts were on their mind as they came to the tomb. We don't know, but we also know that they had this great dilemma. And so now we pick up the story at verse 4. Let's go back to verse 2 and uh, capture this. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, somewhat of an understatement, had been rolled away. The Greek language there means tossed uphill. So, so picture this round stone as though somebody took it like it was a quarter and just flipped it over on its head uphill. It's been said that the tomb stone was moved not so that Jesus could get out, but so that man could get in and see that it was empty. And if that's true, I, I love the fact that God did it in the most dramatic way possible. They saw that the stone had been removed as though someone just casually tossed it aside. We don't need this anymore. Let's read on. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were, what's that word? Alarmed or terrified. What does the angel say? The same thing angels say every time they show up in the New Testament. Don't be afraid. Why is it that angels have to start all the time by saying, don't be afraid? Well, let me ask you, what would happen if an angel showed up here right now? A real angel who stands before the throne of God serving him and comes as a messenger, I, I think he'd have to tell us not, not to be afraid. I think so. I think any time the supernatural breaks into the natural, there's something terrifying about being in the presence of something that is beyond the norm. Don't be alarmed. Don't be terrified, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene. He was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Come, see the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead to you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, if I could help reorient your view of the first Easter as it was experienced by the first witnesses of the resurrection, it would be that you would capture this next verse, verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were so afraid. Trembling and bewildered. The word in verse 5 for alarmed is ekthambeo. It means very distressed, out of one's senses. When they saw the angel, the word afraid at the end is from the root word phobos. That sound familiar to you? And it literally means dread or terror. What would happen if we recaptured the image of the first resurrection and instead of leaping for joy because we know it all turned out great, what if to really capture it, what we picture was three full-grown women, their robes gathering up to their knees, fleeing in terror 
from a cemetery. Christ is risen? Because dead is dead last time I checked. This was the first Resurrection Sunday. You see, this is fascinating. When you really try to capture all the Greek language, as colorful and beautiful as it is, the writers reserve the most colorful language of terror and horror for the resurrection. The death, that's devastating, but the resurrection is terrifying. Why? I'll tell you what I think. Because if Christ is raised, that changes all the rules. You see, we shape our life around a doctrine of death, a reality that death waits for all of us. What's that phrase we like to say? There's only a few things you can count on, death and taxes. We have a doctrine of death. We know death is out there. And so our whole life is framed some way with the reality of death. Think about it. You think about all the things you want to do in life. You think in terms of a timeline. Many of you are near my age or beyond. How often do you look back and go, okay, so how many years do I have left that I could honestly do this? We set our goals. We set our expectations. We live the Miller High Life. You only go around once in life, so you grab all the gusto you can. I got to tell you, that's an old advertisement. It's an old jingle, but that idea drives our life. Everything we're about is about that. Time is short, and dead is dead. See, if Christ is risen, those rules change. Christ comes along and says, dead is not the end. God says, I can work with dead. I can do something about that. And if that's true, it calls for a redefining, a reorientation. Literally, I would suggest it it calls for us to start over completely and look at our life from a whole different perspective. A whole different goal has to be in mind. And that goal is to discover an eternal purpose, a way to live this life that's worthy of the infinite life that goes on. When this life is over, this life is merely a stepping stone into an existence that will never, ever end, you see. When I was a boy, my dad pastored a church in a farming community, and a lot of our folk who came at third, fourth grade uh, educations, and they went to work on the farm. And I remember these two guys, the Dieter brothers, and very simple men, but boy, did they love God. And I remember every New Year's Eve, we'd be sitting there having a hymn sing. And I remember Howard Dieter, preacher, I want to sing Amazing Grace. And when we get to that part, when we've been there 10,000 years, I want to sing when we've been there 10 zillion years, bright shining as the sun. So my dad would have everyone sing when we, do it, sing it with me, been there 10 zillion years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise. And as a 12-year-old boy, I thought, boy, isn't that the corniest thing I've ever been a part of? I thought, that old Howard, we're going to be laughing about Howard for years. Well, now I I have uh, probably less ahead of me than I have behind me. I've grown in my faith. I've lost loved ones who are now with the Lord. And Howard is with Jesus. And I think it's brilliant. 
I think Howard probably wants to sing every day with the heavenly choir. When we've been here 10 zillion years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. How much do your choices line up with the reality of a risen Christ? Or is it true that you have a faith that includes the idea of eternal life, but your life is still dominated by a doctrine of death? You're looking for the living among the dead culture around you. You will never find it. You will always fall short of what Jesus promised when he said, I came that you might not just have existence, but life abundant. That requires an eternal focus. That's what Easter tells us. It changes everything. My life is eternal. My purpose is eternal. My hope is eternal. How do the choices I make every single day of my life match that? Or do I put that on a shelf and then live my life among the dead, satisfied to live among tombstones, the priorities of the world around us. Get all you can now, because dead is dead. Christians need to live different than that. That's why Paul says, I want to know Christ not just in the fellowship of his sufferings, but in the power of his resurrection. If I could pray anything for you this Easter, it's that you would capture that that the reality of the Easter story would become so unsettling to you, (laughs) so startling, so terrifying in a sense that it breaks you free from the ideas of life that keep you shackled to living just for today and for this life. Philosophers have this thing they called a limit experience. Now, I'm not a philosopher, but I'm going to do my best to describe it to you. A limit experience is an experience that either an individual or a culture can have that is totally beyond their ideas of reality. And so when you have it, you have the same description as these women had when the angel comes. They were stupefied. It's like it, like it fries your mainframe <laughs> because it's so beyond any ability you have to process it from your belief systems, your experiences, and your understanding. That is a limit experience. For instance, being told you have cancer and you have several months to live, that's a limit experience. Losing someone. 9-11 was a cultural-wide limit experience. Can you even remember life before we use the word terrorists? And here's a few things about limit experiences. One, they aren't always good. <laughs> Sometimes they are. They aren't always good. But they are permanent. They are typically terrifying. But when they're good, the fear ultimately gives way to liberty, a new way of living. Resurrection Sunday is the ultimate limit experience. It changes everything, and that ought to be unsettling. But because it's out of a good God and it's the ultimate good, that unsettled this, that fear should break through to freedom to live life without fear of death. Imagine that life. Imagine the time you would stop wasting on bitterness of the death of loved ones who are with the Lord, of suffering and hardship and of the wishes of things that could be, of the feeling like you're running short on time, 
refusing to let go of the past when we have eternity in front of us. It's liberating. I pray for that liberty in you. I pray that the resurrected Christ would help you embrace the resurrected life. Reorient. Death is not the end. Let's pray together. I want you to bow your head and just ask yourself, how much is your life in tune to the doctrine of death as opposed to the resurrection of Christ? What would change today if you were to say, this changes everything. I'm going to live by a new set of rules and a new perspective. For some of you, perhaps it starts just by entering into that new life in Christ. Maybe this is the day where you embrace a risen Christ as your Savior and Lord and come to him. Give your life over to him. You could do that. You could actually start that resurrection life here in this place. Father, I pray for all of us. I pray that we would embrace the reality of life eternal and that it would liberate us to live this life as you created us to with abandon and hope and with joy. I just celebrate, Father, what you've done in this place. Thank you for this space. I pray that you'll fill it with Jesus seekers for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.